So hopefully you've noticed in these songs that tell us to sing, these psalms that tell us to sing, one of the biggest things that's consistently brought forward as a reason to sing is God's judgment on the wicked. Here's why you should sing. Because God is judge, and He will judge with righteous judgments. That's the end of Psalm 98 that we just sang. And that theme crops up, of course, very prominently in our scripture text tonight in Exodus 15. Moses and the children of Israel sang this song because God threw Egypt into the sea. God destroyed the Egyptians. That's why Moses and the Israelites sang. So, Exodus 15. Then Moses and the children of Israel sang this song to the Lord and spoke, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and its rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and song, and he has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will praise him. My father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. Yahweh is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his army he has cast into the sea. His chosen captains also are drowned in the Red Sea. The depths have covered them. They sank to the bottom like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, has become glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, has dashed the enemy in pieces. And in the excellency of your greatness, you have overthrown those who rose against you. You sent forth your wrath, which consumed them like stubble. And with the blast of your nostrils, the waters were gathered together. The flood stood upright like a heap, and the depths congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My desire shall be satisfied on them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind, the sea covered them, they sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. You in your mercy have led forth the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them in your strength to your holy habitation. The people will hear and be afraid. Sorrow will take hold on the inhabitants of Philistia. Then the chiefs of Edom will be dismayed. The mighty men of Moab, trembling, will take hold of them. All the inhabitants of Canaan will melt away. Fear and dread will fall on them. By the greatness of your arm, they will be as still as a stone till your people pass over, O Lord, till the people pass over whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them in the mountain of your inheritance. In the place, O Lord, which you have made for your own dwelling, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established, the Lord shall reign forever and ever. For the horses of Pharaoh went with his chariots and his horsemen into the sea, and the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them. But the children of Israel went on dry land in the midst of the sea. Then Miriam the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took the timbrel in her hand, and all the women went out after her with timbrels and with dances, and Miriam answered them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and its rider he has thrown into the sea.
Let's pray. Father, we praise you that you triumphed gloriously over the horse and the rider, that you threw Pharaoh's hosts into the sea and you brought your people forth and led them to your holy habitation, the sanctuary not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Father, show us the magnitude of the Exodus and show us the magnitude of this song celebrating the Exodus. And teach us to sing to you as we ought, as the people whom you have redeemed, the people who have been brought by your holy hand out of bondage into the glorious freedom of the children of God. Father, fill our hearts and our mouths with song tonight and every day. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there are four major songs in the Pentateuch. Four major songs. This is the second of the four. The first song is Genesis 49, Moses, Jacob's blessing of his 12 sons. The other two songs are in Deuteronomy 32 and 33. The song of Moses and then Moses' predictions regarding the 12 tribes. So the first and last songs are about the future of the 12 tribes. The two songs in the middle, this one in Exodus and the song of Moses in Deuteronomy 32, are praising God for the magnitude of His power, His greatness, His deliverance. So what is this song about? It's about God's victory and God's rule. The song says, God reigns. God won. We all love an underdog, but there's a limit to that. God is not the underdog. God won, and that is part of why we should sing to him. So we'll talk about this under the headings of who should sing, how to sing, what to sing, and why to sing. Who sings, how to sing. Most of the sermon, of course, will be what to sing as we look at the content of the song and then why to sing. And this is, of course, talking about literal singing. In the 16th, 17th century, there was a crazy Baptist in England who said, you shouldn't sing in church. That's all fulfilled. That was an Old Testament custom, blah, blah, blah. We shouldn't do that anymore. So that guy was wrong. If you go to a church, you will find at least somebody singing. Some churches have made it so only the pros sing. But every church just about has some kind of singing and that's because it's so prominent in Scripture. You must sing to God. So let's start with that. Who should sing? Well, the song starts, the chapter starts by saying, Moses sang. Moses, as the leader of the people of God, took the opportunity, took the lead in singing. Moses personally sang. The leaders have a primary responsibility to lead God's people in singing, as well as the other elements of worship. Moses did that. Uh, some say, based on verse 20, Miriam the prophetess, they think that's a coded reference, meaning that Miriam wrote this song. I don't know if that's true, but it certainly doesn't say that Moses wrote the song. Moses sang the song. Not every Christian needs to be a songwriter. 
But every Christian needs to be a singer, somebody who uses his voice to proclaim with music what God has done. So Moses and the sons of Israel sang this song. Joe Israelite, ordinary Joseph Israelite, he sang this song. Not Moses and the worship team sang this song. Not Moses and the choir sang this song. Moses and the children of Israel. And Miriam sang too. Women should sing. Some uh, fools have taken Paul's words about women keeping silent in church and said, what about women? Should they sing? Yes, women too should sing in church and especially out of church. This song is not a church song. This song was not sung in church. This song was sung on the beach. Looking out over the Red Sea, where Pharaoh and his army had drowned a short time previously, and proclaiming, wow, we're going to stop, and we're going to sing praise to God for what he just did. It's not good enough to just stand there on the shore, looking out over the Red Sea at sunrise and saying, thanks, Lord. That was amazing took it one step further and they sung. So Miriam the prophetess sang the sister of Aaron. Aaron is mentioned too to give him just a role. He was there. He's related to Moses and Miriam. Miriam the prophetess, maybe the author of the song, we don't know. She took the hand drum and the women went after her. Hand drums and dances. Doesn't say that the women sang other than Miriam. I think that that's a fair conclusion from the text, especially since the sons of Israel means the children of Israel, all Israel in verse 1, sang this song. They stopped and they poured out praise to God. We're the beneficiaries of a greater redemption than Israel experienced. We should be singing a greater song than Israel sang. Singing is the response of a heart that's full, that says there's no greater thing, there's no better way to praise my God than this. So how should you sing? Well, they talk about instruments. Of course, the women took the lead on this. Hand drums, timbrels, dances. Timbrel is an archaic word. We don't use that in English anymore. But it just is a Hebrew word meaning a hand drum, probably not very similar to the modern tambourine, except in how it was played. So they went out, they beat these drums, and they sang. It would not look, probably, very much like the way we sing. But it's with instruments, they also use dancing. Now again, this is not in church, this is in everyday life. And throughout Scripture, dancing is mentioned regularly, and pretty much every time it's mentioned, it's ascribed strictly to the young women. The young women do the dancing. Now, that's a reflection of Hebrew culture. God is not saying men are not allowed to dance. But dancing is a bodily expression of joy. It's a way of saying, I am excited. I'm happy. God turned my mourning into dancing. As the psalm says, 
That's what dancing means. I'm joyful. There's not in the scripture this concept of a sad or lugubrious dance where you dance around slowly to let everybody see how sad you are. So does this mean that we should use hand drums in church, that we should dance in church? This is not saying they built the tabernacle and then as part of the ceremony at the tabernacle, they used tambourines and dancing. Now that does seem to be mentioned to some extent in the Psalm 68 passage that we read. Uh, remember, you have seen your, they have seen your procession, O God, the procession of my God, my King, into the sanctuary. The singers went before, the players on instruments followed after. Among them were the maidens playing hand drums. Bless God in the congregation. So it mentions the singers, but what's absent in the psalm is dancing. Interestingly, but they used drums, they used singing, and they had something like a marching band, a procession going into the sanctuary of God in Psalm 68. God's people are not allergic to singing. They're not allergic to instruments. They're even, in the right context, not allergic to dancing. A tough word for the frozen chosen to hear, but it's here in the text of Exodus 15. The whole body should praise God. Well, my voice is singing, therefore, I don't need to look happy. I don't need to move happy. I just need to sing happy. No, that's not true. Use your body language to express how joyful you are in what God has done. We should not sing to the back of the chair in front of us. Wrong. It's not how Moses and the children of Israel sang this song. Nor is it how Christians should sing their songs today. So what should we sing? This is obviously the meat of the passage, the core of the passage. 18 verses of song lyrics in this text of 21 verses. And you can break it out roughly. I've broken it out into four things. The first part, the first ten verses, exalt the Lord for his victories. I will sing to the Lord because he has triumphed. God wins. And that's important to remember. We can get so caught up in the idea that Christians are the underdog, that God loves the underdog, that God helps the weak and the disadvantaged and the poor, and he does. That's all true. And Israel was the underdog, except until God intervened and poured the Red Sea on top of Egypt, and then Israel was no longer the underdog. Israel won because God wins. And if we get this idea of poor me Christianity that we think, well, Christ is the ultimate victim. He's always getting crucified. He's always in weakness. He's always poor. He has nowhere to lay his head. He has nothing. And I follow this Messiah with nothing. We can go too far down that path and forget, no, he's the king. He wins. He triumphs gloriously. He conquered the forces of evil. He shattered the power of the enemy. He destroyed the Egyptian forces and he will destroy the forces of evil today. So yes, there's suffering. Yes, the power of evil is rampant on earth right now. 
and will continue to be until Christ firmly puts a stop to it. But our God is a winner. He triumphed gloriously. And we can't forget that side of it either. The horse and rider he threw into the sea. Israel was on foot. We talked about that this morning. A man on foot can't kill a man on a horse, but God can kill a man on a horse. God can kill a man in a chariot. God has all the water in the Red Sea and more. The Lord is my strength and my song. God is the source of our power to do anything in this world. As Jesus said, without me, you can do nothing. Here's Israel singing that on the shores of the Red Sea 1,500 years previously. God is my strength. Our source of power is not protein bars, energy drinks. Caffeine is my strength. Red Bull gives me wings. Well, if that's your strength, you know, you're going to go in the grave and die after you get heart palpitations from too much caffeine. But if God is your strength, you will never come to the end. Those who wait on the Lord renew their strength and mount up with wings like eagles. And that's what God's people are singing about here. God is my strength. God is my song. The one I sing about, yes, but also the one who makes me want to sing. Some people, of course, are natural singers and they love to sing about anything. Uh, Alexa's brother is kind of like this and his mom would say to him all the time, get a stage. This is not musical theater in here. So you might be somebody who likes to sing about, please pass me the butter. Most of us need a better excuse than that to sing. And Moses is saying, Miriam is saying, whoever's writing the song is saying, God is my song. I don't sing about the contents of my Christmas list. I do sing about the Lord who gives me strength. So God is my strength and song. This Then he is my God. They claim God as theirs. God belongs to me. Not he is a God who's distantly related to this world. He's a clockmaker who rounded up and let it go. He's somebody who's the guarantee that things will come right in the end. God is not some distant force or ground of being. God is my strength. He is my God. The God who belongs to me. The God who belongs to my family. My father's God. And I will exalt him. When I think of this God, I don't just think of it in individual terms. I think of him in corporate terms. That's how God introduced himself to Moses back in chapter 3. I am the God of your father. If you know me, right? if you care about your father and who he worshipped, if you care about your family and that family legacy, you will know me and you will worship me because I'm the God of your father. And that's exactly what Israel sings back here. My God... So I praise him. My father's God, so I exalt him. This is what our family does. Me and my house will serve the Lord. So we need to do this. We need to claim God as our strength, claim him as our song, claim him as our God, claim him as our father's God. And part of that then is his victory over evil. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name.
we can get too insulated as, as I mentioned before, part of a comfortable majority in a comfortable society. And we can forget that there is a lot of evil in this world and that God is in the business of dispatching and destroying that evil. God is a warrior, a man of war. God is not a man of peace, the one in soft clothing, the courtier who's in king's houses, as Jesus mentioned. That's not who he is. He's a mighty, powerful God. His name is Yahweh, and he conquers. He just beat the most powerful army in the world. Pharaoh's chariots and his army he has cast into the sea. His chosen captains are drowned in the Red Sea. The depths have covered them. They sank to the bottom like a stone. Because God is a warrior. And God beat them as easily as you beat the rock that you throw into the pond. That's how much trouble Pharaoh was to God. Yes, ten plagues. Yes, this protracted fight between God and Pharaoh that took a year, but when it comes right down to it, when we see the victory of God, we realize God not only could win easily the whole time, but he did win at the end. At the end, he snapped his fingers and said, Pharaoh, enough. We're done here. Waters come back together. Israel stands on the shore watching the sea lap on the beach under the sunrise. That's the victory of God. So they describe the right hand of God that smashes the enemy, how he overthrew those who rose against him. He burned them up like stubble in the fields. With the blast of his nostrils, the waters gathered together. So God's breath has power over fire. God's breath has power over water. And he controls both of those things for the good of his people and for the destruction of evil. It's easy to get cynical about the power of evil. Right? I said a moment ago that we can forget that evil's out there, but we can also go the other way. We can forget that evil loses. We can forget that evil's days are numbered. Oh, the bad guys are in charge, and they always will be. We can think of that in our own context, right? as we were talking about beforehand, Oh, the Wyoming legislature. They'll never do anything right. They can't make good laws in Cheyenne to save their lives. Well, that's not true at the end of the day. Maybe it's true right now. I don't know. But Christ is setting the world right. One of the things that he will put right is the state of Wyoming. One of the things he will put right is despotisms, places where Jesus and Christian worship are outlawed, North Korea. Certain states in India where angry Hindus are in charge. God will set those places right. It doesn't mean that we give up. It means that we sing praise to him and say, God will triumph. God will conquer the enemy. So we get to hear from the enemy in verse 9. I will pursue. I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. My desire shall be satisfied. I will draw my sword. My hand will destroy them. Six uses of I or my in one verse. Indicating what? The the enemy is utterly self-focused. Pharaoh is all about himself. I, me, my. That's what evil says today. 
I'll destroy, I'll capture, I'll conquer, I'll lay hold. And God just blows them away. Like leaves, the sea covered them, they sank like lead in the mighty waters. So what should we sing? We should sing about God's victories. We should sing about God's protection. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. So God protects them from Egypt, and then it goes on to say how he protects them from five nations in Canaan, Philistia, Edom, Moab, Canaan, four nations. The people of Canaan are not a threat because God can make them still as a stone. Now, obviously, the book of Joshua tells us how the people of Canaan did fight back. The poem is saying, overall, God neutered their response, particularly at the beginning. Israel comes into the promised land, and then as an act of faith, they're all circumcised rendering themselves powerless for days while they heal up. At that moment, two Canaanite cities could have crushed them. God is the one who kept the Canaanites off their backs. God is the one who allows them to go into the land, get circumcised, get healed, and then rise up and conquer. God can deliver us from any persecution, any threat, any problem if he so chooses. No, he doesn't always choose to do so in this life. He's promised the opposite of an easy life. But he's promised, too, that we will come safely through any and every spiritual danger if we trust him. The only way we can fall away is by our own consent. If we agree to throw off Christ. But if we say, no, I'm going to cling to Christ, we have his promise that nothing so bad will come our way that we are forced to lose our faith and reject him. His protection was such, by the greatness of your arm, they will be still as a stone till your people pass over, O Lord, till the people pass over whom you purchased. So we exalt the Lord for these things in our singing. And frankly, this song is, can be a rebuke to our playlists. If we listen to music that the world has labeled explicit, we entertain ourselves with songs that the world says, these are dangerous, these have bad stuff in them. We're not doing what this song says to do. We're not singing to the Lord. The passage is telling us that as we sing, when we sing, the primary theme of our singing should be the glory and might and power of God. Not body, rude, or suggestive songs. If the world calls your playlist explicit, you're dishonoring God. Sexual immorality and impurity should not even be named among us, much less celebrated with elaborate musical, lyrical, choreographical, and cinematic settings. The content of this song is a rebuke to what we listen to and what we sing. Whether you like your sexual immorality highbrow and listen to opera, or your sexual immorality lowbrow and listen to rappers, 
doesn't really matter in God's sight. The point that this song is telling us is when you sing, most of what you're singing should be singing to the Lord. He's the audience of your song. Certainly that's true. If you're singing in the shower, if you're singing on your bicycle, and if you're singing in the car, who's listening? God's listening. He's the audience for those songs. Maybe your children are, maybe your family is, but sing to God. That's what Israel did, and that's what we need to do. We should sing to God, and we should listen to music that sings about God and His greatness. Now, that could certainly be music about natural revelation, music that celebrates God's creation, the world as it is, but it should never be music that dishonors God, that violates His commandments, or that teaches us to sin against Him, or that celebrates sin. That music is inappropriate for the Christian. Christians exalt God, sing to the Lord for His victories, for His protection, and ultimately for His promise of heaven. And it's so weird to see the commentators on verse 17. You will bring them in and plant them in the mountain of your inheritance. And the commentators were all like, Sinai? Zion? None of these really fit. Well, no, they don't fit. Because it's obvious that the song is talking about heaven. The place which God made for his dwelling, the sanctuary made without hands that God's hands have established. That's where God is bringing his people. The goal of the Exodus is not life in Canaan. The goal of the Exodus is life in heaven. And that's true of the greater Exodus out of sin that God has brought us on today. And so, to those who say, well, the land promised to Abraham, it has to come true. In this world, in this time, Israel belongs to the Jews. We say, look at the beginning. When God brought his people out of Egypt, what was the promise? You will bring them in and plant them in the sanctuary made without hands. God then was taking his people to heaven. And that's why we should sing. If you're singing about getting bacon for breakfast tomorrow, your sights are too low. You and I should be singing about the promise of God to put us in His own dwelling, the place which God built, the sanctuary which His hands established. That's what the Exodus is about. That's what the Christian life is about. We get discouraged if we think, well, the Christian life is about being good on earth. Well, that's true that we need to be good on earth, including in what we sing and what we listen to. But the reason we need to be good on earth is because we're going to heaven. And the songs you love should be able to come to heaven with you. The Psalms of David, the hymns, spiritual songs, songs that celebrate the goodness of this world, God's creative power. The, the joys of work. These things that God... Good songs that celebrate good things. These songs are fit for heaven. These can go to the sanctuary God's hands established. And that's why we sing them on earth. So, the song climaxes, the final line, The Lord shall reign 
forever and ever. This is the first time in the Bible that it says God is king. God reigns, using that kingly verb to describe the activity of Yahweh. God is not revealed as king in Genesis. He's not revealed as king in the early part of Exodus. It's only here, after Pharaoh is out of the way, the king of Egypt is off the stage, and now the spotlight turns on the real king. The Lord shall reign forever and ever. If you're a fan of Handel's Messiah, I certainly recommend listening to Handel's setting of this, Song of the Sea. He sets every word of the song, verses 1 through 18, whole thing and his setting especially of this last line the Lord shall reign forever and ever is as good as anything in the Messiah well worth listening to but that's why ultimately we sing because God is our king you can listen to the music of coronation for various British monarchs some of it is pretty good but none of it is as good as, none of it could be as good as music that celebrates the kingship of Christ. Elizabeth has reigned a long time, but the Lord shall reign forever and ever. That's why we sing. Because God's kingdom is not coming to an end. The kingdoms of this world are going down. The kingdom of God endures. And that's worth singing about. We all know the patriotic songs, My Country, Tis of Thee, and the rest. Those are good songs. Those are worth singing. But our country will not reign forever and ever. The Lord will reign forever and ever. So why sing, verse 19, The horses of Pharaoh went with his chariots and his horsemen into the sea, And the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them, but the children of Israel went on dry land in the midst of the sea. Why do we sing? Because Pharaoh's army went in the Red Sea and never came out. Because Satan is going into the bottomless pit and never coming out. Because God is leading us through the wilderness of this world, and we're definitely coming out of that wilderness and going to heaven to dwell with God in the sanctuary, His hands established good news is good news right maybe your heart wants to sing when you read the news and see whatever your candidate got in you're getting a raise your boss tells you this good thing that good thing but the best news we could ever hear is that the lord will reign forever and ever that's worth singing about Sing to Christ, for Christ, about Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you will reign forever and ever. Thank you that the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdom of our God and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Thank you that blessing and honor and glory and power belong to the one who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Father, help us to sing joyfully wherever we are, wherever you take us, to listen to people singing joyfully about your majesty, your greatness, your dominion, 
your power, your victory. Lord, we praise you for song and for singing, and we ask that you would bless us as we sing your praise now and through our week. We pray it in the name of your beloved Son, Jesus our Lord. Amen.